I'm ready for the word of the Lord. And Brother Goff, I want you to preach to me tonight. Amen. Come and take your liberty. Preach what you feel. Teach whatever you feel like doing. We love you and appreciate all of the hard work that you do here at the Truth Church. Amen. I want you just to obey the Holy Ghost tonight. God bless you. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. So good to be in the house of God tonight. Amen. To feel his rich presence in this house. I agree with Brother Hilton and Pastor. It feels so good to be in the house of God. And uh, I like what I feel. I know God is wanting to speak to us tonight. And I just want to, for the sake of time, jump into the word. But I do feel an old song on my heart. It's an old chorus. I'm sure many of you may know it. And it's called, I Am Blessed. Amen. It's an old chorus I grew up singing as a young man. I remember being, being very fond of it. And I felt it on my heart coming to church tonight. Amen. If you could help me sing it tonight. Amen.
come in here blessed here tonight. Can we lift our hands and talk to him? I thank you, Savior. I thank you, Master. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Brother Kaiser, if you could bring this stand down here. I'm going to do something a little different tonight. I'm going to teach from the floor. And I want God to give me the strength after getting whooped up on basketball last night. Old brother self, I said, I feel like an old man. I was like, did it happen to you like it happened to me? I got up with all these surprises and had all kinds of aches and pains. So, so good to be in the house of God. I really didn't get a chance. I had intentions to, but I meant to make some comments on teams just the way today was. I didn't have a chance to, but I really, really appreciate my church family. I love each and every one of you. And it was an honor to be able to fellowship with you and uh, be in the house of God and spend time with you. I know some left earlier and, than we did, but I know others left later than we did. And I figured I'd let the young have the night and just go ahead and pursue on and move on into the evening, the rest that I needed. Amen to recover. Amen, amen. So good to be in the house of God, and I do appreciate the opportunity that Bishop has afforded me to be able to deliver what God has laid on my heart. Um, this evening, God's laid it on there for several days, and I just want God to have his way. Amen. If you'll turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, I'll be reading a very familiar passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. When you have it, say Amen. All right, it says in verse 24, it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Amen. If we could lay our Bibles down, lifting our hands and our hearts, asking God to minister to us tonight. Amen. Let's pray unto him. Heavenly Father. Thank you, Master, for this opportunity. Can we thank him before we're seated? Can we talk to him just a moment more? I love you, Jesus. I thank you, God, for all that you've done. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. You may be seated. Don't let the change of where I'm preaching from distract you from the word that God has laid on my heart, but I'm taking the teaching literally. When Bishop said I could teach, I'm going to take him at his word. Not a great teacher, but I do like the teaching atmosphere, but I want God to reach down and touch us. I've been feeling this word 
And thank you, Brother Hilton, for singing the songs and leading the word, uh, leading the service as you have, and confirmed for me several things. And I want God to reach down and touch us. I'll give you my title here in just a moment. But God has established the precedent of pursuing after him in order to obtain relief. The goal, the prize that we pursue after, the goal that we have in our life is salvation. That's when someone says, give me your testimony. Your testimony has salvation in it. Everybody has that woven through the fabric of the words from your heart that you will share. And as we read in the text, Jesus is closing out his Sermon on the Mount with those words from our text and gives them the language that he gives about building upon the rock and building upon the sand, the wise man and the foolish man. And these were not empty words. They were not words that he was just giving his closing, his altar call, but he was giving them uh, some words that had some importance to them. He tied his words that had a penalty associated with the first several chapters we find in Matthew where he's giving us the Sermon on the Mount. We find that he brings it to a close and he has some important words to share. And they are, if you do not obey the message, then there are some consequences. But if you do obey what I just said unto you, there are some benefits. You'll be a wise man that builded your house upon the rock. And we know that that rock is Christ Jesus. We know that he is the chief cornerstone. We know that he is the one upon all things. All good comes from him. We find in scripture that when we're pursuing after salvation, God gives us a direction of going towards him going towards him and I want to preach to you teach to you today about he who holds go he who holds go it'll make sense hopefully here in just a little while unto salvation when we have a path that we're going as sinners every sinner has to go down the same path we all have to find our way to God understanding that he is the only way for us to receive salvation and mark Chapter 16 and verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. It's a very clear message that is being presented in Scripture, much like what Jesus presented in his teaching, saying, if you build upon the rock, you're wise, build upon the sand, then you're foolish. But there is action associated with the word of God. The preached word of God is to compel us to do something with the word that we have received. When we read in Acts chapter 2, we've read it many times. Bishop had it in his message this weekend. And now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart in verse 37. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They didn't say, you know, and fill in the blank about anything other than an action, Bishop. They said, we have heard the word, and we are ready to do obedience to the word. And then in verse 38, he gives them the message. This is what you must do. Then Peter said to them, repent. And so they repent. And they baptized every one of you. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. And then they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
there was something that happened after they went with the plan that Peter had given to them. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There is a plan. Can somebody say amen? In Acts chapter 8 and verse 38, it says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. There was some action. We find, as we have read the story and heard it preached many times, where Philip Philip reading the word, or the eunuch reading the word, and we find them coming together, and, and we find it being shared with them, and we find there's action from it. He didn't just say, okay, it's something for me to think about, but he says, I must do something with what I have heard. And they obeyed, and he was baptized. In John chapter 14, and verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You're not going to get where you need to go in life unless you are in pursuit of salvation. Once you lose the pursuit of the promise of God, God fills you with the Holy Ghost. But you must hold it dear to you. It's something that you must hold on to as if your life depends on it because it does. Salvation does not appear and take over your life. It's something that you have to pursue. And to stay in the church, it's something that you must pursue. You can't just stay in here and have a magnet draw you every service and feel the power of God. You have to pursue after God. Revival is not just going to appear because you show up, but you show up with your appetite and God will then show up and do something. There has to be a press, a pursuit of what God has to offer you. If you need something, there has to be action on your part. Everybody say my part. In Isaiah chapter 55, I'll be reading a couple of verses of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, it says, O oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore, sorry, it says, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not, hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. In the application of what I'm talking tonight, I'm trying to show through Scripture, and we have so much more to go through. But I want you to understand, if you want something, you have to reach out for it. You have to desire it. 
you've ever been on a fast day and uh, someone could just mention food, all of a sudden your mouth starts to water and you don't even, not even your favorite food, but you would settle for it because you're hungry. The word of God is much like that. You hear the promises said. You hear the testimony of the saints of God. You hear Bishop get up and preach and deliver promises to us. And, and I imagine it will happen this week in revival services where the Savala will come in and deliver the word of God that God has laid upon his heart, and it's going to be full of promises. Whether it be to saint or sinner alike, God delivers promises to his people. John 7 and 37, it says in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Matthew 11 and 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelations 22 and 17, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. All of us have that very same promise in the Word of God. When we heard a preacher get behind a pulpit, or someone in a Bible study, or whether it was someone just in passing begin to share with you the Word of God, saying it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter what your stature is in life, just come to church. We've had people, I'm sure you've had the same thing, they say, well, I don't have the wardrobe, I don't have everything right. And we say, it doesn't matter, just come to the house of God. And we know because we've seen the after effect of what happens when you do come to the house of God. That's why we can believe it with conviction. That's why we can say, listen, if they could only get it through their hard head, just come to the house of God. If you could only be in the service that I was in, if you could only feel the presence of God that I felt, if you would only just come to the house of God. And we say it with conviction. And we mean it because we know. The called are commissioned to go. And reading in the book of Matthew, we follow along as Jesus compelled the men that he would later call the 12 apostles. And Jesus gave the apostles, the 12 of them, power to go and do miracles. But they first had to come and listen to his beckoning and come unto him. We know that obedience to his call supersedes any physical comforts and earthly obligations. And Jesus responded to the request from a disciple to bury his father, and he said, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. We, saints of God, cannot put the things of this world that so easily fall in front of priority, and we let it supersede our position of, well, I'll get to it when I get past this, this, and this. We have to put those things aside and let God place a priority on those things in our heart. My, my. My, my, my. We have to let God place the priority instead of us. We have to let him be the one who says, this is what I want you to do. 
The testimony that we have tonight is just the beginning. We have to continually hear his voice. It's not like the married man who told his wife, I told you I love you, and if I want to tell you again, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. That's not the relationship with God. He wants to hear us talk to him. His beckon of come should be answered continually of, yes, Lord, I'm following after you. Here I come. God, strengthen me. Give me the steps to take. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, and it says, When he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And verse 5, And these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go, not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but rather go, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Now we see what was promised by Jesus when he took the men that he called out of their life, out of their occupations, and said, if you will just come and allow me to work on you a little bit, I'm going to take you places. And then there was a moment in time where they stood before him or sat before him, whatever the case may be, and he opened up the plan for them and says, if you will obey, you've obeyed my beckoning of come unto me, but if you will obey these words, I'm going to send you somewhere and you're going to do the miraculous. You're going to do great things. In Matthew chapter 15, in verse 29, Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. I find that language interesting. It's very descriptive. It doesn't just say he went there and ministered. But it says what Jesus did. Sometimes, it probably happens more often than what we would care to admit, we try to use Jesus as our example, and when we're in need of something, we decide to do like Jesus and just sat down. And we expect things to come our way. We expect things to fall in our lap. But what I've done trying to show you leading up to this point is it requires action on our part. And it's not just faithful church attendance, but there's action on my part. There's things that I have to do. There has to be a burden, a desire that compels me to where Jesus can come say, come and I'll fight through everything that I have to to get there because I know what's waiting on me. As did the multitudes. And it says in verse 30, And the great multitudes came unto him, having them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. The miracles were so many, 
and marvelous that the multitude of people were in awe as Jesus sat there on the mountain and performed miracle after miracle. As they made their way and they brought them to Jesus, I can only imagine as we get into the story, we'll find out a little bit more about the quantity of people, but thousands of people are there. I can only imagine the excitement that was happening as each one that would come up and he would speak the word or however he chose for them to be healed and all of a sudden the blinded eyes would say, I can now see. And they run around rejoicing and hugging everybody. And the person that was maimed, that probably had a limb that was missing or gone or crippled or deformed, be able to lift their hands and run around. And those that couldn't walk could now walk. And it was just a time of rejoicing. It was because they came. And what compelled them was his ministry. He didn't have a, his outreach was his ministry. His outreach was listening to the plan, was obedience to the plan. The, the disciples, their outreach was living upon the plan that Jesus had put down and says, if you just obey me and go unto them under my name and you listen to all the things that I've commanded you, you'll be able to do all of these things. What a time of rejoicing. And all of this was while Jesus was sitting down. You see, in verse 29, he sat down there. Verse 30, it says, and they cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. You have to be willing to take your problem to God. How many times have we heard bishops say, you don't need to wait for me to come pray for you. You need to bring your problem to God. And there's something that Jesus does in this following sequence of scriptures that I find so very profound. It's not deep or it's not theological. It's not going to blow your mind. But it was because they brought their need to him. It says in verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Jesus had compassion. It cost them to see what they just seen. Those miracles cost them. You know why? It's because it moved Jesus to compassion. It says, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. They put their needs and they carried them to Jesus and they said, listen, you're the only answer that I have. I have lost all hope. There's no other reason that I would have any other uh, healings in my life if but I bring them to Jesus. And he had compassion on them. They were committed to the cause. Three days they stayed there. Three days that Jesus seen them come in and bring those that were maimed and halt and those that could not move on their own or could not speak or could not see. And God, Jesus reached down and continually healed them one after another. And after meeting the healing needs in their life, Jesus knew they hungered. 
They had traveled and all their provisions were exhausted. They were consumed. So on day three, and still there was nothing to eat. It was Jesus that raised the concern for food, not them. We don't see in Scripture, I couldn't find it, where they said, the disciples come and said, we have all these people, we need to feed them. But it was Jesus who says, I have compassion on the multitude. You see, Jesus just knows just how to throw a feast for his guests. He knew how to send an invitation. He performed miracle after miracle. He knew who was going to be there. He knew the needs that were going to be present, and he didn't shy away from them. He then went to the place that he said he was going to be, and he sat down and said, said I'm a man of my word. Bring them. He sent the invitation, says, listen, this is where I'm going to be. They followed him, and his work compelled them to follow his ministry. And it spread throughout all the region. He didn't have to have his disciples go and do a six-month deputation and say, on this day, this time, Jesus is going to be on this mountain, and he's going to do miracles. But it was because he was consistent. It's because he was he was just who he said he was going to be. Secondly, we find that Jesus established a precedent for how to throw a feast that he would reference later in Scripture. And we'll get to that in just a moment in Luke. And lastly, when the picture is complete, you see that there is an eternal impact on his guests. And the intent was not only on the healing, but the plan was to provide sustenance, substance to them all along. It wasn't that it was just about the miracle. Because he knew there was a message that would come at a later date that he'd be able to reference back to this and be able to talk about this miracle, because he did. He referenced these miracles. He referenced feeding the multitudes of people. In, in chapter 15 and verse 32, and he says, I have compassion on the multitude. And he talks about, they've been with me three days. And then in verse 33, it says, And his disciples said unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to feel so great a multitude? And Jesus asked the question about how many loaves they have, and their response is much like they found when the 5,000 were fed. At this time, it was seven loaves and a few fishes. The quantity of how many they responded with is really irrelevant. Jesus asked the question for the benefit of the disciples. He was letting them see how few of a provision they had so that then when he did provide, they understood the magnitude by which the miracle that was performed. And he provided a great feast for them, and they picked up baskets full, baskets full of provision that was left over. But there's a feast that I want to talk about for just a few moments tonight. It's in Luke chapter 14. And Jesus is sitting in the house of one of the chief Pharisees. In verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. 
We see that that he is Jesus. And the feast was one of tension. The reason is all throughout the ministry of Jesus, miracle after miracle, we find that they occurred, a lot of them, on the Sabbath day. They call it out. They'll reference it in Scripture. And I find it every time, interesting, every time he does that, I feel like he's just poking, poking the Pharisees, just saying, what are you going to do now? He's calling the card. He's trying to prod them along. He's trying to get them stirred up. And, oh, he does. This incensed the Pharisees. And they sought to kill him because of the actions of Jesus on the holy day. And Jesus, knowing the situation, he brought the fight to them and addressed the elephant in the room. And this is the same Jesus who's sitting among his accusers in other scriptures where the scripture says, knoweth their thoughts and the intent of their heart. Jesus is sitting in their home and begins to ask them pointed questions. And in the same instance of knowing the intent, he also knows the need that's present in every room. So he knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what's going through your mind, how engaged you are right now in the service. He knows what's rolling through your mind. He knows your desires. But he also knows the need. In verse 2 of Luke chapter 14, and behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy, which was a retention of fluids. It was something that in those days was considered next to impossible for healing. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? What a question to ask the chief lawmakers. The ones who criticized his every healing when he did it. The ones who pointed fingers and jabbed back at him and stood there with their arms crossed and judged him every time he healed because it was on the Sabbath day. And Jesus answering. This does not mean that there was a question posed to Jesus. In fact, the prior verse states that they were only watching him. We don't see a dialogue between them. But in that house, they watched him. And Jesus answering, this is the scripture is stating that Jesus begins to address the subject. And this was Jesus taking the fight, the argument, the criticism into their own house. And the audience was not one of inexperience in scriptures, but learned men of God. Uh, men that were stewards of the law and creators of their own laws and rules according to what they deemed as godly living. And what is stated in verse 2 is not exactly clear. However, it implies that the man approached Jesus. And based upon the mannerisms of the Pharisees, they that watched him, it could be that the man possibly could have been a trap. If you think they're above treachery, you can read passages in Luke chapter 20 where they sent spies or hypocrites among the people around Jesus so they could bring accusations against him. He even could have been a visitor or a member of the family that came into the house. It's not known, but knowing who we're talking about, I wouldn't put it past the Pharisees to invite him for dinner and then plant somebody and let Jesus know there's a need in the house. And Jesus didn't back away from it. 
regardless of the situation, knowing there would be men that would judge him, that could ultimately put him to death, he still says, there's a need in the house. And in verse 2, and behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. So Jesus asks the question in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And in verse 4, we see where action comes from Jesus' actions. Uh, his intent, he says, and they held their peace. So we still don't see any dialogue between the Pharisees, the lawyers, and Jesus. All we have is a man sitting there before Jesus, having a need, and it says, and he took him and healed him and let him go. The Pharisees did not provide a response to the answer that Jesus asked. And Jesus addressed the need that was before him. When he says that he took him, this could be that Jesus may have grabbed him by the hand or Jesus may have taken him from the room and then healed them. Regardless, there was a direct connection from the source of healing. There was no doubt that it was Jesus who did the healing. There was nobody else that could step up and say, well, I did it. But Jesus stepped up in the midst of a tense situation and grabs the man and heals him. He wasn't scared. He wasn't afraid. There was a boldness in the midst of all of his accusers, the ones that would ultimately say, condemn him, crucify him. He still had compassion and healed we know from other scriptures that the multitude only had to touch the hem of his garment and were healed. It wasn't just the woman with the issue of blood. But it talks about other people that said, if I can just but touch the hem of his garment and were healed. There are many times that Jesus only spoke the word and they were healed. Jesus made the healing more physical when he spat into the dirt and created mud and put it upon his eyes and perform a healing for the blinded eyes. In this instance, the touch tied the healing to the tension in the room, and there was no doubt that it was Jesus who done the healing. And the action that followed the touch was miraculous, such that he said, let him go. What a powerful moment to be in if you were on the side of Jesus, if you were a disciple what a moment to see whenever Jesus stands there or however he's positioned in front of the adversity, the, one that, uh, the ones that want to uh, crucify him at a later date, the ones that just want to kill him, and, and next thing you know, he's healing. And you're saying, I can't believe he's doing it again. And then Jesus goes straight to parables. He begins to talk to them about the parable of the wedding feast. And he begins to share with them some words that are very pointed to them. And I'll summarize these so we don't have to read through all of them in Luke chapter 14. But he gave them parables because they didn't have an understanding. They had unbelief in their heart. They sat there always seeking a sign, seeking a sign. But Jesus goes to their house and addresses their self-imposed righteousness and the pride that consumed them. 
And it's shown how they seated themselves among themselves. They placed distinction and prominence in the seating, and Jesus was showing how it was abased, how they were placing themselves and pushing each other down based upon where they were seated in the house, meaning that they were in fact trying to push those down around them and to gain prominence. It was self-promotion is all it was. Greek scholars show that it was a petty distraction from those trying to exalt themselves by squeezing themselves into the space next to the host. That's what he's talking about, about how they're positioning themselves and, and allowing themselves to be manipulated and, and put in these places where they're calling higher seats and going to places instead of just coming in and taking the low road and sitting among just the common. But they were going in and promoting themselves. And Jesus showed why it was better to allow the host to invite you to the position of prominence instead of trying to work yourself to the top. And you can apply this in so many ways, but I just want to touch on it just for a moment. I felt this. I just want to share it with you about personal development. Because personal development is not always about how great you are. Instead, it is about you realizing how much you need others and equipping you with the skills to bring more value to others and from those around you. So before you get so stuck on personal development, you need to understand what needs to be developed. It's not all about the great me, the great brain, the great I am. It's about how much value you can bring to others. It's about honing your skills to help others. How many's ever went to a dog obedience class? Anyone? Sister Goff? You know well, just as well as I do, that a dog obedience class is not for the dog. It's for the person with the dog. That teacher will instruct and teach for an hour. And that dog don't have a clue what that person just said. But it's for the person who was just taught to sit there with their dog and hear what the teacher just conveyed, to take that information and put it to use, apply it to the dog, and then the teacher has you bring your dog back and they teach you more, all the while they're observing you and how you applied last week's lesson. Because that dog doesn't know every time that instructor says, tell them how to sit, this is how you hold the leash, this is what side they should sit on, this is how you approach a crosswalk, this is the command you give. That's all for your reference. So animal training, you go to a dog obedience class, you could go without a dog. But the proof is when you bring the dog. And the instructor says, you're struggling here. Why don't you fix this? Personal development is the dog before the instructor. And you, all the people around you, can see how well you took the class. Because behavior is observed by everybody. It's not just for your own benefit. So when you throw your fit, when you have your disagreements, and you have your moments of immaturity, 
Everybody says, obviously, the dog's not getting the training. Personal development is not about you. It's about others. And if you can't do it for the sake of others, you're doing it for the wrong reason. The problem with the mindset that you are the great one means that there is a valid belief that you truly are the great one. Jesus said, I will draw all men unto me. He is the great I am. Jesus told his followers to become as little children. This means our faith is simple. God can do anything, and I can't do anything on my own. That's what it comes down to. And Jesus is trying to convey that to the Pharisees, and he's teaching great lessons. But he goes into another parable right after this and begins to talk about the great banquet. He turns his focus upon the host of the feast. It says that he talks to the host of the feast, the chief Pharisee, and begins to tell him, if you're going to throw a party, if you're going to have a feast, who, here is who you should bring. Here is your invitee list. And here's who they are. Those who are maimed, those that can't walk, they're lame, the blind, the dumb. This is the host of people that you should invite. Here he is addressing directly the man who invited him, telling him, look at all these people you have here. You've invited the wrong people. But there was one, and I healed him. There was one, and I healed him. So our focus must be that we are in full pursuit of God. Our lives are filled with decisions, transitions, times, seasons. And every one of us are in one of those right now. If you're stagnant, you're dying. But as God progresses you in your walk with him, you are all of us. We are all in a transition. He's pulling us. He's wooing us. He's trying to get us to go places with him. None of us could sit here and say, well, this is my address. We had a joke that uh, it, it was interesting at work many years ago. We, for protection, the commercial indication is lockout, tag out. Those of you who have been around safety and hazmat, you know uh, OSHA rules. They require you to have lockout, tag out. And that's to remove, remove all source of energy. And you put your tag on there, you lock it, nothing can happen until Douglas Goff removes that lock. And you, if you cut the lock, it's a fireable offense. You lose your job. And so we had something on in the railroad that's very much the same way. It's actually identical. It's called blue flag protection. And you have blue flags that they'll put out on the track and they're lit. You have blue flags that you put on the locomotive consist so that no one can move the locomotive. And you have uh, blue flags that you'll put uh, on the tracks, on the locks. And everywhere you go, if you're on a track that's going from north to south, on the north, you're going to have a track that's locked. You're going to have a flag so many feet from the locomotive. And I don't care how, if it's a mile back, you're going to have, no, no matter how far you are from danger, you're going to have another track that's locked. You're going to have another blue flag. And then you're going to go up on the locomotive. And then you're going to put a blue flag on the locomotive where the operator can see it. And you're going to disengage all power. 
and it's a protection. And sometimes you have this flag hanging on the front of your locomotive and people would give you a hard time about spending so much time on a locomotive that they went one time and it wasn't to me. But so, uh, one day this guy had been on this locomotive for days and they put a blue flag on it and they put a mailbox on it because he had been there so long working on a problem, couldn't fix it. He had established where his home was. He would go to work every day and knew, I'm working on this locomotive. They put a mailbox on it to mess with him. We can't do that in the kingdom of God. If you're not moving, you're going backwards. There is no treading water in the kingdom. Because the moment you stop progressing, the moment you start, stop moving towards God, is the moment the devil has enough momentum to walk up and slide his hand around your shoulder and say, you don't need to do this anymore. But if you run the race that we have all been called to run, he doesn't have an opportunity to run up beside you because he cannot keep up with God. He cannot outrun worship. He cannot outrun the praises. You being a witness and knocking doors and inviting people to church is just those boosts in the walk with God that just takes you that much faster, going that much further. But the moment you stop, he slides his little hand around and says, you're not having much luck today, are you? And you hang your head and you guys begin to talk about it as you drag your feet and trying to make your way down the path. Now, I don't have numbers in front of me and I'll reference this and move on. And I believe my memory serves me correct, but every time after outreach, we have visitors. Every time we have outreach, we have visitors. We've had them come in, whether they be the next service, the next service, it, after that, it doesn't matter. This last time, we had phenomenal turnout. And you know what? We had people that we didn't even knock their door, don't even live in this city. You know why? We did something. We did something. It's because we came together and did something. And God honored it and says, oh, you're going to do something? I'm going to reward that behavior. I'm going to call this person from that church that's unhappy, that's searching for God. I'm going to call this person from this neighborhood that you didn't knock the door, wasn't on a list, no one even talked to them. I'm going to drive by and I'm going to walk in the back doors of those ch this church. It's because we did something. How is it that we can have so great a faith the scriptures I read about baptism, the scriptures I read about being filled with the Holy Ghost, and we can have the faith, and we can tell people just come. But when we're asked to go, it's a struggle. But the benefit is, just like we had the other weekend, we had outreach, we had people pour in the back doors. But as saints of God, it's easy for us to come in and say, oh God, just send them through the back door. And all you want to do is, oh, send them through the back door. I'm watching, God. Any of them coming? I don't hear the back door squeak. No one's coming yet. But the moment we pick up the tools that Bishop has given us, and we apply them, and we carry a burden, you forget about looking at the back door. You're focused about right here. This is where the focus then rests. 
It's how can I get them to the altar? How can I slide back there and say, hey, do you mind if I pray with you for a moment? You stop listening for the squeak. And if you've ever been here in the morning by yourself praying and you're all by yourself and the church is dark and everything's dark around you and, and your ear is finely attuned and you'll hear that back door, you're like, someone's coming. And you'll be praying with one eye open, walking back and forth, just waiting for them because you know they're there. But if you do outreach, that's the squeak, saints. They're coming. They're coming. We just have to come to him at his beckon, and he's the one who holds the go. He's the one who says, hey, 12 apostles, I want you to go heal. It's because they left all that they had. And they listened to him and obeyed. Saints of God, we may just have to walk away from conventional church where I have my place, I have my song, my favorites, and God walks in the midst and sweeps in and just lets people walk in because we're saying, I can't wait for church to get over because I got to go invite somebody. Not before the restaurant closes. Or... Hey, I, got, I can't go to this birthday party, not because I have something at church, but i got to go talk to somebody. I've got to teach a Bible study. I must compel somebody. And you may have one person or no people. We have a Bible study scheduled for tomorrow night with not one person scheduled, but I promise you, the Word of God will be preached as it's done time after time. And people will walk through the doors of this church because there's an effort. We fish for men. We don't go down there and spot them and see them from a bridge and say, I want that one. But we fish for men. We desire for them to come in. We don't go out and pick the trophies. God is the one who's moving and ebbing and flowing in their life. The first step, ensure that we are in full pursuit of God. Do something. Doing something is not always the right thing. Now let me clarify this statement. We can become so obsessed with not doing anything that we lose sight of our guiding principle. And God is the only one and the only focus that we have in our life. Some people, it's impossible for them to sit still. They must do something. But if I could admonish you, church family, make sure you're doing something for the kingdom. Make sure it's the right thing in the kingdom. Make sure that you're doing in your lockstep with Bishop and Sister Regan. That way what you're doing is this big wave that's coming through of all of us doing what we should be doing. Instead of somebody out here with a water gun trying to put out a fire by themselves. Let the collective body of Christ have that wave that comes in and sweeps through our city. And revival rides upon it and says, listen, this church is in tune. They're in sync. They're in tune with God. They, the word of God that's preached, they've got it. Instead of somebody else so focused on me that it starts to fracture, lose its momentum. We must ensure that any steps we take are in God's will and not our own. And it's easy to give a verbal amen to this, but it's harder than we all think because we are all guilty of being faced with a decision and have at times in our life and chose the option of just doing something and rather instead of sitting still. I, I just got to do something. There's nothing wrong with doing things in the kingdom. We are all compelled. None of us are said, sit here or take a rest or, you know, this is where you need to stay. God has not called anybody 
to set. And lastly, never let comfort be your guide, but choose to trust, choosing to trust in your own paths really comes down to unbelief, and unbelief leads you to pride. It is because you feel so confident in your decisions that there is no other option, even if God is trying to prove you with patience. So saints of God, we must do it the right way. A place of frustration will lead you to reacting out of desperation to do something. You get so tired of it that you're losing the sight when God's compelling us, saying, come. But you're sitting there wrestling with what do I need to do if you would just stop and listen to his voice and let him speak to you. You know, David attempted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. It didn't work out the way that he planned. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, regardless of the plans that David made, he gathered 30,000 chosen men and celebrations abounded with the return of the ark. It's finally coming home. But he wasn't doing it right. He thought he could do it the way the Philistines were doing it. He threw it in the back of a cart because they threw it in the back of a cart. And somebody lost their life because of it. For the sake of time, I won't read the passage. But the anger of the Lord, in verse 7, was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him for his error. This is a prime example of why you can't rush God and you can't compare yourself amongst your brethren. Because just because you see somebody else do it one way doesn't mean you should do it that way. God prescribed the right method by which the ark was to be moved. And it was not until David aligned with the plan then the ark was able to come home. Looking again also, another example. I know this scripture has some negative, a lot of negative, but it has a lot of positive in my opinion. In 2 Chronicles chapter, 17, chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... Will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land? We find Solomon had just dedicated, dedicated and built the temple. It's profound because God came to him in a dream and shared with him promises. If Solomon, if you'll obey my direction, I have something great for you. We all know that Solomon's fall. We all know that he listened to too many things going on around them. I'll stop here and just for a moment. If your direction doesn't come, does not come. I want to make sure I state this very clearly. If your direction does not come from your bishop, your pastor, you're listening to the wrong voices. Parents, tap into your pastor and share it with your children. Children, tap into your parents. If they're not, build a relationship with your pastor. One of the most important people, the most important person, human in your life, is your pastor. Because we as parents, we make mistakes. But God gives Bishop the wisdom and the instruction.
to be able to help us and lead us. Solomon chose to hear the voices of his many wives and chose to follow after their gods, and we all know what happened. We all know that if we don't obey the word, what will happen? And if I could just admonish you just for a moment more, I know I'm almost out of time. But the Apostle Paul addressed those that were speaking of him in a negative manner because he had changed his plans to visit Corinth. And it was such an issue that the Apostle Paul wrote to them and clearly presents the case that they were going, hey, he says he's coming, but now he's not. And it called into question the Word of God. And Paul begins to present his case of them saying that, well, the Word of God must not be true. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We read, it says, For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. There was a campaign against the Apostle Paul to discredit all of what he had taught the church at Corinth. And there was negative talk, but there was enough of a core people that they were able to tap into and say, you know what, I don't believe everything that's being said. And he reached for his core group and those that have been faithful through all of the disparaging comments that have been said about him. And the Apostle Paul addressed the accusations of whether he was walking in the flesh or whether the Spirit was leading him. And that's the verse of Scripture we read. A few verses prior to that, he calls into question whether or not he was being led by the flesh. The Word of God was not yet, not yea, today and nay tomorrow but it was forever settled and what Paul had preached to them and had brought about true change and salvation still stood as fact it was the word of God he was trying to connect with them he was trying to show them that you are established in Christ he hath anointed us and it's in God the one that people are calling into question, saying that they're vacillating between yea and nay, yes and no. But in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, Who also hath sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. When he's talking about being sealed, the commentary states that its meaning is beyond a mark, but it refers to the reception of power from heaven or the infilling of the Spirit as it's identified with you. He has given you His seal of promise. Those that have been sealed with the Holy Ghost and been given the earnest and for this very first payment of their inheritance that is to come. Now, saints of God, we all have a testimony that we can all stand and we can share and we can tell others about. But it's because we keep coming back to him that he begins to give us more of him. It's not just a one-time event. Jobs today are giving sign-up bonuses. If you stay through this period, we'll give you this lump sum. If you stay through this period, we'll give you another lump sum. And then eventually it runs out and then you are supposed to be a faithful employee. 
But God reaches down through his infinite wisdom and says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That means he's continually reaching for us and we're reaching for him. And it's a blessed marriage that he reaches down and touches the church and and says, listen, I'll take care of you. And we begin to receive the blessing of God. But if we only just participate, if we, if we will only just continue to push and to go, God will then turn the switch and say, I'm the one who controls the go. And so now that you've obeyed the word and you're now where I want you to be, now you're going to go somewhere. Not to use too many uh, workplace analogies, but it's probably one you'll uh, remember. Back in the day, they had something called a turntable. It was in front of old roundhouses, they called them for the railroad. And you would have one track coming in, but that turntable would be turned for the track coming in. You'd park a locomotive or whatever moving device on it. And then the operator would then rotate that table and pick the track and then say, I want you to go to Bay 22 for repair. God is that same controller. It's not for us to see, oh, I see Bay 22 is open. I want that one. We must come and submit ourselves and say, God, whatever you want for me in my life, I want to obey you. Not my plan, not my focus that I have personally, but God, what is your plan for me? And you must come to a stop and you must let him decide. I want you to go down this path. I want you to go into this track. I want you to go to this person. And God has done that to all of our lives. That's why we sit here today with various different backgrounds, different upbringings. And God has placed this church family together and says, I want this man to work on you. I want this man to work on your spirit. And John 6 and 26, and Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You see, there was a multitude of people that had eaten the bread, been fed by Jesus and the miracle of it. They couldn't find him. They went one place, went and found him another place. And then Jesus calls them out for saying, you don't come for the miracles, you're coming because I gave bread. Verse 27, labor not for the meat with which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto the everlasting life, and which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. As we stand today, I want to leave you with a few more words. And Jesus let them know, don't come to me only for the bread. I am the bread of life. Come to me for the life-giving bread that sustains. It's not about the physical bread that you receive. And saints of God, if I could say it this way, church is not a social club. It's not just about the fellowship. It's about the souls. And we've all been given direction. We've all been admonished through scripture after scripture, from message, sermon after sermon. But God is admonishing us, listen, don't put so much hope in just hearing the call and coming in and thinking you have arrived.
but you must go to the place. And if you walk into the feast, and it's all about what chair you're sitting in and what chair this person's sitting in, you're in the wrong feast. You've got to be in the feast that's full of sinners, full of the maimed, full of the ones where Jesus can come in and do something. The professionals, Jesus didn't want to dine with them. He instead turned around and healed the one who had a need. It's not all about what it looks, the optics. We can look at folks and make decisions. But we can also look at our own self and make decisions. None of us are retired, too young, not well equipped. We are all being molded by the hand of God. Every one of us, every one of us, it blesses my heart to hear Sunday school children say, I invited this friend that I go to school with to church. They're not too young. They're not too young, saints. And we have our obligation, our part. We heard the call and we can all testify tonight. But have you heard go? Do you have God working in your life? Has he been moving? Has he been opening doors for you? Or do you feel like you're sitting absolutely still? Has God begin to work in your life or are you just ritualistic? Are you there just for the savor of the bread? Or is it because he is the giver of the life-giving bread? Are you hearing words of saying, oh, well, they said yay and nay? God is calling us, and we have revival services coming. And God's wanting to do something great. And I believe in those services that God's going to send an evangelist. He's going to step to the sacred desk behind me. And he's going to preach the word of God. Don't let the word of God fall on deaf ears. Grab it and run with it. Fulfill your calling. Do what you're supposed to do. If you don't know, go talk to the man of God. Say, Bishop, I need your help. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I'm not being effective in the kingdom. But unless you're winning souls, we're just fulfilling our duty to make sure that worship, singing, musicians, cleaning, whatever it may be, mowing the grass, that's just busy work. But if you come in and your spirit of worship brings in the sinners, now we're going somewhere. Now we got some momentum. Saying, God, you called me. You're equipping me in this moment. Just as you did the apostles, you said, go and heal them. God, I'm taking the word that you shared with me and I'm going to go and I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to touch somebody else's life with it. I'm going to go and do something. But if you haven't heard him say, go child, God, what's wrong in me? Change this old boy. If I'm not ready for prime time, I need you to change something in me. I want to make a difference. Last verse of scripture. 
Matthew 7 and 24. And therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Amen. Let's lift our hands and talk to him tonight. Hallelujah. I worship you, Savior. I worship you, Savior. I thank you, Master. Challenge me, God. I thank you for your word to challenge me. The conviction, God, let it rest in my heart. I want to be prompted, God, to do more. Hallelujah. I know we're at time, but let's just spend a few moments talking to him. Let's give honor to the word of God. Hallelujah. I love you, Savior. I love you, Savior. Hallelujah. God, I want to be used of you. I want my focus, God, to be upon you in all things. In all things, Master, I want to be focused on you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, yes, lead me, Lord. Oh, yes. I will follow you, Savior. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you have, Master. Hallelujah. Oh, lead me, Savior. I'll sing it as a prayer tonight. Lead me, Lord. Oh, yes, I will. Oh, yes. Yes, I will. Lead me, Lord. Hallelujah. 